As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Democrats and Republicans seem to agree. We have a broken system. Wisconsin's current system of bail is broken. Wisconsin's system of pretrial release is flawed. We have to change our bail system. We have to change it. But when it comes to designing a solution... We're going to let the judge look at your past criminal convictions. The devil... Is it perfect? No. ...is in the details. Why are we not taking money out of the equation entirely? This is about a constitutional amendment that simply, 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 simply allows judges to take into consideration dangerousness. This week on Open Record... What we're doing is not working. Bail reform comes to the ballot box. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined this week by Open Record's executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Brian. And Contact 6's Jenna Sachs. Hi, Jenna. Hello. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, for release on Thursday, January 26th. About a week ago, the Wisconsin State Assembly and Senate voted to approve a change in the Wisconsin Constitution. It is the second year in a row they've passed this identical resolution. It would fundamentally alter what factors judges are allowed to consider when they set cash bail for people accused of violent crimes. Now, normally, when the legislature passes a bill, it goes to the governor for approval. In this case, it would be Governor Evers. But this time, the governor does not get a say. Instead, you, the voter, will decide if this attempt at bail reform is the right one. That's a lot of setup there, guys, but obviously there's a lot going on here. Well, you know, Brian, this has been such a hot button topic in Wisconsin, especially over the last year. You've talked about this issue a few times on Open Record. Can you remind us what happened in our state, how we got to this point? Well, obviously the thing that made this such a hot topic of conversation uh, in Wisconsin and even really around the country was the Waukesha Parade attack in the fall of 2021. So it's been a year and a couple of months since then. But this issue actually predates that. There was a study committee in the Wisconsin legislature in 2018 where they looked at trying to change our bail system. And and simply put, bail is just the conditions that are set by a judge, by a court, that apply to someone who is being released before trial for a crime. Because, of course, under the Constitution, we're all innocent until proven guilty. That's the way our criminal justice system works. Someone is charged, but they have to be convicted before they are sentenced to jail or prison or whatever else it might be. But what do you do with those people while their cases are pending? And we know from, especially since the pandemic, there's been a backlog of a lot of pending cases. So you have people being accused of really violent crimes But then it might be months or even years until they actually get a trial or or have some sort of resolution. So what do you do with those people in between? Bail is the conditions that apply to those people before they are tried, whether they are acquitted or they are convicted. And 
many people just end up staying in jail because they can't afford to pay bail. One of the conditions we most often talk about is cash. Um, but some people are able to get out. Some with lesser offenses are released without having to pay any cash at all. And the real controversy, of course, with the Waukesha Parade incident was that Daryl Brooks had been released on a $1,000 cash bail uh, before his trial for two different violent crimes, one for shooting at his nephew and another for allegedly running over his girlfriend with the same SUV he ended up then using in the Christmas parade. And that's really what drew everyone's attention to this issue was how was someone accused of such violent, heinous crimes allowed out for $1,000 in cash and then able to just commit the atrocity that he did in Waukesha, we now know since then he's been convicted of that, so we can say he was not just allegedly the one who did it, he did it. Um, but that's what drew attention, and that's still what I think the conversation is about now, is how do you prevent people, say like a Daryl Brooks, from getting out of jail before they're convicted and committing more terror to the community? Well, and there aren't set numbers. So, you know, as it now stands, the Wisconsin Constitution, excuse me, lets judges that they're the only ones. The judges can set the cash bail and like you said, to ensure that they come back to court. So, you know, this amendment that's kind of going through, how would that change that? So Wisconsin is sort of unusual in that when it comes to setting cash bail, like the dollar amount, here's someone, they got $500 bail or $1,000 bail or $100,000. That dollar amount under our state constitution, not even just state law, but like the framework of our entire legal system, the only reason they can set that cash amount is to ensure a person comes back to court, to make sure they show up for their hearing. It's not really supposed to factor in if the person's a danger, if the person is considered to be someone who uh, might actually commit more violent crimes while they're out. The only factor, according to our Constitution, that judges, that even prosecutors making recommendations are allowed to consider is is this person going to show up? So what, what happens is if you have someone who has a lot of strong local ties to the community, there's no other real reason to think they might skip town. There's no real incentive for the judge to set a high cash bail because, well, they're probably going to be around. Um, the, the question is, what about the danger they pose? And this, right now, there is you know, obviously a, a, an effort uh, in the legislature to change that, to give judges the ability to consider past criminal convictions, to consider uh, the nature of the offense they're currently charged with. If someone's charged with murdering someone with, with homicide, they clearly pose more of a danger to the community. Now that probable cause has been found, they've been charged, uh, maybe they've even been bound over for trial, there's reason to believe that they're a danger to the community. Whether or not they show back up for court, do you want to keep them locked up in the meantime or give them a really high bar to cross to get out? That's the question and that's what this would address. I think that might surprise some people in the state that that's not a factor already. Do you think that's fair to say? Well, yeah, and, and there's already some discussion. Some say that judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys, when they discuss this, they're already sort of factoring in dangerousness. I mean, that they already do this sort of a wink and a nod. They're not technically supposed to, but they already do. And, and the people who support this change in legislation say, well, if that's what they're doing, they shouldn't be. It's unconstitutional. They shouldn't be considering that at all. But the way it usually factors in is you might have a judge who says, okay, you're charged with homicide, and because of the amount of time you face in jail, I think you're less likely to come back to court without a real key incentive, so I'm going to raise 
your bail or I'm going to set it higher. So technically, they're still setting it based on likelihood of coming to court, but they are in a way factoring in dangerousness. But it's not explicit. They can't really have that discussion. You can't have a prosecutor who says, judge, look at this person's previous offenses. Look at the nature of this crime. This is a person who shouldn't be on the streets. They pose a real danger to the people around them. And that's why I think the bail should be this. They kind of have to talk around it. And there's no real, uh, the, the supporters of this would say there's no real accountability for the judge when setting that bail because they don't have to state those reasons on the record. They don't have to make a record of why they're setting bail the way they are. That's another thing that this proposed change in the state constitution would do is it would require judges to make a record of why they are setting bail the way they are. So not only would they be able to factor in considerations like past criminal history, danger to the community, seriousness of the current offense, they would have to explain why they set bail the way they did. If they set a low bail or didn't set one at all, um, then they would have to explain that and put that on the record. So these proposed changes would only apply to violent criminals. So how are supporters saying that they're, what defines violent and who, and who gets to say that? Well, and that's a, that's a sticky question here because when you say we only want the supply to violent criminals, well, what's violent? I mean, I think we can all probably agree homicide is a violent crime. What else, how far do you go down the list? What about offenses maybe that might not be overtly violent, like someone using their fists or using a weapon. But what about something like, you know, what about sex crimes? Are those violent crimes? What about someone who has uh, sexually assaulted a child? Is that a violent crime? So they have to make some determinations about what applies here in terms of violence and, and or, or serious harm to the community. And the way these amendments that have been written, uh, or this amendment has been written to the Constitution, it takes into account people who have committed serious harm against the community or I risk to cause serious harm. Well, what does serious harm mean? And that's something the legislature has not yet defined. It's something critics have pointed to and said, you're asking us to write a blank check because how you define serious harm says a lot about how far this is going to go. There seems to be agreement on both sides of the aisle here, both supporters and critics, both Republicans and Democrats, that they don't want to set up a situation that increases cash bail for low-risk offenders, people with very minor, nonviolent crimes that uh, that really don't need to be held pretrial to protect the public. They probably need to get out if you want to keep sort of society humming along. You want to want these people not to become destitute. You want them to be able to go to their jobs. You want them to be able to still pay their rent and and, and feed their families. So they both sides say we don't want the supply to low-risk offenders who are still presumed innocent pre-trial. It's only the violent ones, but how do you determine who the violent ones are? How do you determine who people are who pose a serious harm to society? That's up for debate, and it's yet to be defined. Now, supporters who voted on this in, in both the Assembly and Senate say, we'll have that definition before this goes to the voting public in April. That's something, of course, we're going to be watching, but they have not yet defined what it is, and yet... They've passed the constitutional amendment already. So you mentioned critics just now. Do critics want to keep the system exactly as it is, or do they propose something else entirely? And that's one of the interesting things here is I think both sides say our system, our bail system, our pretrial release system is flawed. They've both, both sides, I've talked to uh, Republican leaders and Democratic leaders who say it's a broken system. 
The question is how to fix it. And while uh, Republican leaders here have been the ones who really pushed the ball forward in terms of introducing these constitutional uh, amendment uh, proposals, they want to give judges the ability to set higher bails and to set them, uh, particularly with what they say are violent offenders. Um, Democrats and, and other critics, on the other hand, say higher bail is not the answer. In fact, they say we should be eliminating cash bail altogether, getting money out of the picture. And their reason for that is they say that money is not a predictor of risk. Your ability to pay a certain amount of money doesn't necessarily mean you are or are not dangerous at that point. And some people, of course, have more access to money than others. We've seen in our own reporting that there are situations you might look at, say, a Kyle Rittenhouse who was able to crowdsource a huge amount of bail and get out pretrial. But then there are other situations where there are people who maybe are drug dealers with connections to a network of people who have funds at their disposal. I would point out Kenneth Twyman, who we've talked about on open record here. He actually had a convicted drug dealer who posted $100,000 bail on his behalf to try and get him out. We, of course, reported on that. And then Richard Stulo, the man who posted that bail, withdrew the payment. Uh, but he was short, short of sort of the spotlight being shined on that and drawing some unwanted attention uh, in Richard Stulo's mind. Short of that, he had easy access to cash. Does that mean Kenneth Twyman, who's charged with homicide, who's charged with other violent crimes dating back a few years, does that mean he's not dangerous or that that will prevent him from going out and committing new crimes? Well, his track record shows that's not true because He's posted bail previously in three other cases and still got out and was charged with new violent crimes. In fact, those crimes escalated. So critics are essentially saying that access to money allows people with that access, people who are wealthier, people who are connected to get out and maybe pose even more of a risk to the community, while people who may be no danger at all or pose very little risk are still incarcerated simply because they can't produce small amounts of money. We talked a little bit about Wisconsin Constitution and how it, it varies from other states, but how does it truly compare to the rest of the country when we're talking about pretrial release? The uh, supporters of the, the legislation here actually just recently met with the National Conference of State Legislatures, and they tracked this. They looked state by state at all 50 states to see what are the conditions that courts are allowed to consider when they are setting pre-trial release conditions when they're setting bail and particularly cash bail. And if you look through, it's a, they, they pro provided me a copy of this spreadsheet from the National Conference of State Legislatures. And it can be very convoluted and complicated because each state has its own system of, of rules and, and they, you can get lost in the weeds. But if you step back, sort of a 20,000 foot view, you can see that every other state other than Wisconsin, allows courts to consider multiple factors, not just one. In Wisconsin, it is just the one, which is when setting cash bail, they can only consider a defendant's likelihood of coming back to court, their flight risk. In other states, there are multiple factors. And in 45 states, the rules explicitly, the law explicitly allows courts to consider a defendant's criminal record and or their risk to public safety. In fact, the state of California says public safety risk is the primary consideration when setting cash bail. So there are certainly different views on this throughout the country, but the vast majority of states at least allow courts to consider that, that public safety risk, that criminal history element when setting cash bail. There are a few that don't. And we also know that there are a number of states that also implement what some 
critics and or Democrats, uh, critics of this proposal and, and other Democrats want to do in Wisconsin, and that is there are a number of states that have a pretrial release system that is based on risk. Some have sort of a combination where they've got the cash bill, but they've also got pretrial risk-based release. And and what that means here is, is the people who say we should be focusing on risk say, instead of worrying about how much money someone has, we should be looking about what their risk is to the community, both because of their prior history, the nature of their current charges, whether or not they're likely to come back to court, all of these factors in, in concert, you can do an evidence-based risk score. There are already counties in Wisconsin that are doing these reports to evaluate someone's risk, but you can then determine, is this one who's too dangerous to let out pretrial? And if so, you hold them no matter how much money they have. And if they're not, you let them out no matter how much money they have. The proponents of that say that's essentially elimination of cash bail. But it's really controversial because I think there are a lot of people on sort of the other side of this who think that's just an excuse to let up a lot of people out of jail. And so it becomes a political hot potato. Is is elimination of cash bail simply a soft on crime approach that lets a lot of people out of jail for nothing? That's certainly uh, what, what critics of that would say. But uh, but I've talked to people on both sides of the aisle. In fact, I've talked to a group called Right on Crime. We've talked about it on this podcast. It's a conservative organization, but they say the key here is risk. We want to keep the dangerous people locked up, and you want the people who aren't dangerous to be able to go back about their lives while their cases are pending. Um, the question is whether or not this reform really addresses that. So clearly this issue has been debated for years, it's nothing new, but it seems like it's really resurged within the last year. I think of the last political cycle with the TV ads we saw highlighting the Waukesha parade tragedy, highlighting the issue of cash bail. Do you think it was the Waukesha parade tragedy that just thrust this into the, the spotlight again, got people motivated and really um, passionate about making change happen? It's clearly the thing that catapulted it to the top of the list. I mean, this is the first act of this current legislative session, the, the Senate Joint Resolution 2 and Assembly Joint Resolution 1. Um, they're the first pieces of legislation. In fact, Senate Joint Resolution 1 was simply a procedural naming who's in charge of various committees kind of thing. But in terms of actual change to the law or to the Constitution, this is the first act this year, and they did it very quickly. And they did it for a reason. They did it quickly. Republicans in particular who, who are supporting this, there are some Democrats who are on board as well, but it's a majority of Republicans. They wanted to get this done quickly enough that it could get to voters in the April ballot. And there are timelines, there are deadlines for that. Um, and you say, well, that's it's been over a year, so how quick really was it? Well, in terms of changing the state constitution, that's a difficult thing to do by design because it's the Constitution. It's not just laws that can be changed from session to session. The Constitution is a more permanent framework for how the state operates, and so it's supposed to be difficult. So it requires passage of a resolution by both chambers of the legislature in two consecutive legislative sessions. So they did this after the parade tragedy last year, and then they did it again in an identical form this year as quickly as they could. And now it's in a state where this whole thing goes to voters for final approval. It doesn't go to Governor Evers. He has no say here. It goes straight from the legislature after passing two sessions to the voting public. So this will be on the ballot for voters to address statewide. If you talk to the supporters, some of the sponsors of this legislation, they would say this isn't all about Daryl Brooks. This isn't all about the Waukesha Parade. That's why it's become 
such an issue for the public in many ways, but this has been an issue for years. And in fact, if you go all the way back to 2018, you know, five years ago now, there this was a, a topic that was being discussed. There was a study committee that spent a lot of time addressing what are some ways to improve the bail system to make sure that people who are dangerous are being kept locked up and people who are not are not. And it didn't really go anywhere. There were four pieces of legislation that came out of that study committee in 2018, and they went absolutely nowhere. The Waukesha parade tragedy happens. Milwaukee DA John Chisholm steps up and says that was an inappropriately low bail for Daryl Brooks prior to the parade. And suddenly he's all over the front page of the New York Post and the Daily Mail and everywhere all over the world. And it's it's the hottest topic around. And now, of course, it's it's uh, topic number one here in Wisconsin. Well, and, you know, you mentioned Brooks and, and then you mentioned Kenneth Twyman. And that's a case that you've covered extensively, you know, and then the bail posted by Mr. Stulo. Um, you know, what are some of the other high profile cases that you've kind of covered recently that that show that these high bail amounts don't always keep them locked up, you know, and behind bars until their trial runs its course? Well, this podcast is being released on, on Thursday, the 26th of January. And on Thursday night, the 26th of January, we are airing another story on this issue. And for that story, we profiled uh, a young man by the name of Jaquan McMurtry. He's 20 years old. Um, and at the age of 20, already has four pending felony cases now. One of them is reckless homicide for a reckless driving crash in which his passenger died, another 20-year-old named Denari Peer. Denari's parents, since that crash, have made, uh, they've been pretty aggressive in seeking media coverage of their feelings about um, how the DA's office has handled Mr. McMurtry, what they think about the, the bail system in Wisconsin. They went on national news shows all you know on just about every network almost immediately after this crash, which just happened in October of 2022. Um, they have been uh, they're they're being strong advocates for their now late son Denari. Um, while he was in the same car with Jaquan McMurtry, they say he did not they you know he he didn't know that he was going to go 109 miles an hour down the road. They say they weren't very close friends. He needed a ride. Um, so others have certainly pointed out to pointed to that and said, oh, he never should have been in the car with someone like that in the first place. Be that as it may, whatever you may think of that, the fact is Denari Peer died in a crash that police say Jaquan McMurtry was behind the wheel. He was driving 109 miles an hour moments before the crash, according to the onboard uh, recorder and the data recorder that was retrieved from that. And he was already out on bail for three separate felony cases at the time. So this is someone who had been, as a juvenile, convicted of armed robbery with use of force. As a very young adult then, charged with being a felon in possession of a firearm, again being charged as a felon in possession of a firearm plus bail jumping, and he was charged with drug dealing. All of those charges pending, he was out on $3,500 cash combined on the three cases when he uh, ended up being involved in this fatal crash. Again, he's charged. He's not been convicted. And that's the key here. He's been charged in all of these cases. He hasn't been convicted in any of them except for that juvenile conviction for armed robbery with use of force. The family looks at it and says, you know, what was he doing out, number one? And then even after he was charged with reckless homicide, this is what really, I think, set the family off. After he's charged with his fourth felony uh, case in just a few years of even being an adult, the judge set his bail at $50,000 and someone came along and paid it. And their son's accused killer 
was out of jail again. And the family was beside themselves. What is someone with this kind of track record doing out? What I think is interesting here, guys, though, and I don't think a lot of people are talking about this, is this particular proposed change wouldn't necessarily, I say necessarily, wouldn't necessarily have changed the outcome in Jaquan McMurtry's case there because he hadn't been convicted. And according to the proponents, the supporters of this legislation, they say this will allow judges to consider past convictions. What would it do for someone like a Daryl Brooks? Daryl Brooks, while he did have some previous convictions, the ones that were most alarming were the shooting at his nephew, the running over his girlfriend with the SUV just days earlier. He was charged in those cases. He had yet to be convicted. Would this change in, in legislation allow judges to consider those? Would this have changed what happened in Daryl Brooks's case? You could, on the one hand, maybe argue it wouldn't have had the impact some think. On the other hand, if they're considering the totality of the circumstances, his potential harm to the community, then perhaps they are considering those pending charges. I think that all remains to be seen, how this is going to play out. Certainly the intent behind this is to make sure that someone like a Daryl Brooks, with that string of violent offenses being charged, that that would draw further attention and that, that a court would look at that and say, um, you know, $1,000 is just simply not enough. And we've had a lot of discussion today, but in the end, this is going to the voters. What will this look like on the ballot? Uh, what will they be asked to approve in April? That's the thing. Sometimes these things can be confusing because it's legalese. You go, I don't know if you've ever been in the voting booth and you pull up, uh, you know, a constitutional amendment and you read the language and you think, what does that even mean? And I think there's some real question. I know critics of this proposal have said they're concerned that voters aren't going to understand quite what they are voting on. There are two questions based on this that will go on the ballot. One has to do with conditions of release before conviction. That is non-monetary conditions. And the other has to do with cash bail before a conviction. Uh, in both cases, people, uh, voters are going to be asked if whether or not judges, whether or not the courts should be allowed to uh, design, in the one hand, conditions that are designed to protect the community from serious harm, but we don't yet have a definition of serious harm. And the second question, whether or not they should be allowed to impose cash bail based on the totality of the circumstances, including seriousness of the crime previous convictions of the accused, probability that the accused will fail to appear, and the need to protect the community from serious harm and witness intimidation. Those are the questions that will appear on the ballot. In the end, what they're really saying is, should judges be able to consider more than just whether someone comes back to court? And that's what voters will be allowed to uh, have a say on. This is coming up the first Tuesday in April. So it is now, uh, you know, what? what is that, maybe eight weeks away? maybe nine, I don't know. It's, it's a couple of months away from now. Um, but this is a big question, and this will be the first chance voters really have to have a say in how the system works since that Waukesha parade tragedy. And that is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. I don't know how fun it is when we don't know. We just sit here and try to contemplate, but I, I guess it's fun. <laughs> I always feel like I'm on the spot and I've never have good answers. Well, that's true. I feel that because there are some good questions, but I feel like some of them do require a little bit of like. Wait, were you saying it's true? Were you saying it's true that I don't have good answers? You were agreeing with well, me? 
<laughs> Usually you disagree with me. No, I'm just okay, kidding. No, all right, all right. Or you, ask you... why we're talking about candy corn for the fourth time. You know, also side note, Dave, last week our editor Dave goes, hey, do you keep track of the open re- or off the record questions you've asked? Absolutely not, Dave, but uh, that's a really good idea. I probably should have done that. Uh, here we are. Today's question uh, forces us to go back to our childhood. So good luck. What meal traumatized you? As a kid. Oh, I already know. This one I actually have an answer to. I, I also had like an impulse reaction. You go first, Brian. Uh, and, and we all know. We, we all know Sue Polson listens to this podcast. So <laughs> Hey, Sue. Mom, I, I'm sorry in advance. But the one as a kid it, that just, it, 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 I just knew when I smelled it in the house that this is what we're having for dinner. And I had that visceral reaction of today sucks was <laughs> ro- roast with vegetables. Um, and, and, and the roast itself was fine. I, you know, I was, you know, th- that was fine. It was the idea of like carrots and, and broccoli or whatever the other things were just soaking in that sort of like roast juice all day and being soft and meaty. So soggy. It's soggy. It, it, to me, like, I mean, now granted, that was probably a far healthier meal than the burger and french fries I was dreaming of. Yeah. But I remember like, you know, I, it would be like a summer day. The windows are open, screens on, the kids are playing outside. I hear them, hey mom, I'm going outside to play. But then my my nostrils would just catch a whiff of the, oh no, it's roasted roast vegetables day. <laughs> and I, I probably moped outside at that point because I knew, well, this is a bummer. I I also have one that like I get a visceral reaction when I just think about it and it's the sloppy joe. It's <laughs> wow. like I love for sloppy me, joes. I know everybody so else I. loved them. For me it was like a taste thing, an appearance thing, a, a texture problem and the bun soaked up the sloppy oh, joe so, yeah, which so I also hated. There's nothing about the Sloppy Joe <laughs> that I enjoyed. I, oh. It was so disgusting to me, it, whether it was at home, sorry, or at school. Just, I, I never understood why other kids liked Sloppy Joes. To me, they have always been disgusting. I feel like there needs to be a right meat to bun ratio on Sloppy Joes. If it's too much meat, it's like, well, it's too much, but it needs to be a proper so that when I take a bite, I don't, it's not overwhelming with meat and it's not overwhelming with bread. I feel like my mom gave, let me put potato chips on. So I would try to pack a lot of <laughs> potato chips in there to try to break up the taste of the sloppy. <laughs> you know what? My I have a recipe that I make every once in a while, but it calls for celery, which I think that's the point of the celery is to like crunch it up. But then it's weird because then it's like not cooked celery with like the mush of meat. It just it doesn't work for me. <laughs> I, I, my only objection was if you had sloppy Joe, like a homemade sloppy Joe that had like large pieces of onion or something because similar to the celery, probably I just, the consistency wasn't my, my thing, but Jenna, I'm curious, do you still feel that way about, cause you talked past tense, but I get the sense your revulsion stands today. <laughs> I have a feeling in, in her house, in the Saks house, they have not ever had sloppy Joe's. That's just we my have guess. Never ever <laughs> had sloppy Joe's. I, I will never Google that recipe. <laughs> I will not figure that one out. I probably haven't had a Sloppy Joe in 25 years. Well, open record listeners, send all your Sloppy Joe recipes to Jenna. No. 
I feel like I feel like we're gonna have a, a, a an open record get together, and it's gonna be a it's gonna be a manwich night. Oh, gross! Don't bring. Remember the manwich? Yes. yes. Manwich isn't bad. Don't bag on manwich. Isn't it basically it's just not. sloppy Joe though? Isn't that really all it is? It is. Yeah. No, right. it is. Okay. All right. But I mean, it's I don't know. It's not bad. Anyway, um, okay. Sarah. Mm, well, I have a long list, which I don't know what that says about my childhood. I was a very picky eater growing up, but and my dad was the cook, and he. He always made stuff. Um, so my list includes ring bologna. Yeah. Blech. I think it's a texture thing. Just just regular, like regular bologna? No, like What's, ring bologna, like kielbasa. What is, oh, I never called that ring bologna. Well, it looks like a ring. It's in the shape of a ring. Like a Polish sausage. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I guess it's like thick in this way. It's not like a brat. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's gross. Um, have you ever had that Mrs. Grass soup with the little golden egg? No. The bouillon? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. It's, it's, it's a weird thing. The only thing I liked about it was dropping that bouillon egg in there and it like dissolved in the hot water. But the taste of it is like, because my dad would always make it with a liver sausage sandwich. <sighs> liver sausage is also gross to me. Agreed. What else is on my list? Beef stew. And I think it goes back to the chuck, ro- like the roast and vegetable thing. Like I wasn't a big veggie eater. The meat was really tough. I don't know. They didn't have the Instapot back in, you know, when I was growing <laughs> up. So the, the meat wasn't very tender. The veggies were gross. It's the only meal I ever got caught walking back to the pot to try to dump my veggies in. Because I would sit at the table. My parents made me sit at the table until, I, you know, it was all gone. So I sometimes sat there till long after dinner was over. And I would time myself to see if I could dump the veggies back in the bowl. I feel like I got all, caught. all of our moms are listening to this episode of the podcast thinking ungrateful brats. You know, because I think about because I think about the things I've probably made that my kids will one day talk about in this way. They're like, right. I can't believe I hated it when dad made X. Although I don't know about you guys because – so you still have younger kids, young enough that this is maybe still a thing. If your kids don't like what you're making but you're like, we're having this because this is this is definitely at least what, what, what we as the adults want, do you make a second meal that's something they like? Do you make two if meals? I, I don't really make two meals but like I will throw like a bun on there or something – so that they have some food in their stomach to eat. Yeah. But I, I, I have one kid that hates cheese. And that's Which, really yeah. hard in Wisconsin. Yes, it is. Like yeah. in all forms, cream cheese, she has to leave the room. She hates the smell. So I can't make like a lot of those staples like quesadilla and grilled cheese. Right. Like, like all that easy like a good quesadilla. mom stuff. Right. I know. I know. Yeah. But I, I try not to, but honestly, I avoid making the meals that no one's going to eat because it's a waste of my time. Right. If I make a nice meal, I feel so silly being like, I made you a nice meal. I spent an hour on this and nobody wants to eat it. What's the point? I'll tell you, Brian, you and I had this conversation yesterday, like not during podcast time, but we talked about making our kids other meals, you know, yeah. when, they, when we thought that they wouldn't like what we were going to make for dinner. So I got home from the gym yesterday and I had pulled out of the freezer, uh, burnt ends in sauce, like pork sure. burnt ends. Yeah. Put them, I went to warm them up and I said to Eric, my husband, I said, oh, do you want me to make like just some chicken breast for the kids or something? And he goes, no, they're eating burnt ends. And I'm like, okay. Oh no. Brian, they gobbled them up so fast and they were like, what smells so good? You're and then so it came on their lucky. plate. They ate them and were like, the, Kyle, my son just kept talking about the sauce and the sauce is so good. So then later Eric goes, are you going to apologize to me? And I was like, for what? This was like an hour and a half after dinner. He goes, um, because you didn't think the kids would eat that meal. And I 
I proved them, you know, and I was like, dang, you're right. I'm sorry. Because I so thought they weren't going to eat the burnt ends. I had the exact opposite experience just a couple <sighs> of nights ago, which was I made, know that I made something I thought all the kids would want. And it was an, I needed a night. I needed an easy meal. I needed something where I'm not doing a lot of stuff in the kitchen. To make, so I, I stopped by Costco and I picked up a double lasagna pack, right? You throw it in the oven. Lasagna. Easy. The kids all love lasagna. That night... No one wanted lasagna. They one had already eaten. Another one was going to make something else. And, and pretty much, I ended up with two lasagnas for my wife and me. And meat so, sauce and noodles. Yeah. Where can you go wrong? So we froze some lasagna. That's okay. I have some kids that just eat plain noodles. They don't want any sauce on it. You just pile the plain noodle you, on does, my daughter's plate. Does my plate. son live in your house? I was going to say, I oh, think my kids also live there too. Yeah. No, because you mentioned the cheese thing, and, and I won't make this take too long. Dave's going to kill me, but... I'd mm-hmm. say. The, the, Sorry, guys. No, the cheese thing. My son is... Because he, he if you ask him if he likes cheese, he'll say no. And there's a lot of stuff he doesn't want cheese in. But he loves cheese curds, like from Culver's, like fried cheese curds. Loves them. And he'll have so he'll ha- he loves pizza. So he'll have cheese in some things, but other things no. And and the other day, the ultimate test was he asked me late in the evening if I'd make him an egg sandwich. And I said, sure. I made him like a little, you know, some sort of egg on whatever it was, uh, English muffin. And I forgot. I threw some cheese on there. And normally he would say, Dad, I don't want that. But he ate it. And then the next day told me, well, I saw that you put cheese on there. And I thought, I don't want that. But then I ate it and it was really good. So it doesn't make any sense. But he's older. He has like a rational side of his brain that's right. more developed. In theory. Um, than the kids in Sarah and my home. Just wait till they all have a podcast together and they talk smack about all the food we made them. <laughs> it's coming. Guys, my stomach literally hurt thinking about Sloppy Joe's and the smell. Wow. I feel a little Quick, sick. let's end. If my kids are listening to this and they're upset... Tonight, it's roast and vegetables. Ooh. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Sarah, Jenna, thanks for being on the podcast. You are welcome. Of course. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, including our editor, Dave Machuda, who probably loves Sloppy Joe's. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. Bye.